2: Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Rachel Cunliffe, and on this episode, I'll be asking, what does a think tank actually do? Today we'll be talking all about what think tanks do, where they fit into the Westminster ecosystem, and how they might or might not be having an impact on government policy. I'm joined in the studio by Robert Colville of the Centre for Policy Studies, Matt Lawrence from Commonwealth, and Karis Roberts from the Institute for Public Policy Research. Thank you all for joining me. Rob, as you represent the oldest of these institutions, do you want to start by telling us a bit about what the CPS is when it was founded who buy and where it sits in the Westminster ecosystem left-right spectrum.
3: Sure. So the CPS Centre for Policy Studies is coming up for its 50th anniversary next year which is faintly terrifying. And it was founded by a group of people within the Conservative Party who didn't like where the Conservative Party was going. And So primarily Keith Joseph, but then very rapidly Margaret Thatcher and various other people who coalesced around him. And it became the nerve centre of what became Thatcherism. So when she became party leader, it was effectively folded in almost to the Conservative Research Department. And you had this sort of, as a kind of paramilitary wing slash thinking space. For, Don't you have for a, the p- a
2: picture of her fixing a plug on the wall?
3: No, we've got a portrait of her on the wall. There was a story that quite very early in, these, in the C- CPS's career, it was moving into its offices in Wilford Street and no one could get the lights to work and she kind of went, oh, you useless men, get out of the way, I'll do it, and got down on her hands and knees and started rewiring the electricity as she would indeed rewire the British state, which is the <laughs> the metaphor there. So fairly obviously we are inheritors of, the, of that tradition. We believe in a sort of a, a sort of the free market, small state, individual liberty and and carry on going without the sort of formal connection to the Conservative Party, but obviously sort of seeing it as the best vehicle for the things that we believe in.
2: And Karis, the IPPR is almost as old, but from a very different perspective. Different perspective, but actually not dissimilar
1: origins in some ways. So we're about 35, we We're founded in the late 80s. And I guess by people on the progressive side who had seen that people on the right had founded these think tanks that then led to a rejuvenation of thinking and wanting to do the same for the progressive space as well. And so, yeah, the the founders started the think tank very much based on a model of some of the other think tanks on the right, like CPS, like IEA, and and it's gone on from, from there really. And obviously we've evolved over time, but keep those progressive values at the heart.
2: And I should say IPPR is the Institute of Public Policy Research. Yes, Institute for Public Policy
1: <laughs> yeah, There's the, a the tendency
3: towards quite bland-seeming names. In, in fact, Keith Joseph deliberately did this with uh, Ted Heath, so as not to alarm him. He said, I'm fa- finding this thing. We'll call, we, we want to study West Germany. We'll call it the Ludwig Erhard Foundation or the Centre for Policy Studies or, or something, rather than just the you've-got-everything-wrong-mate centre.
2: Although, Matt, you've got a name for yours that says a bit more about what it does. You're very much the new kid on the block when it comes to, to think tanks.
0: Yes, and I suppose I'm unusual in that I'm both the director of Commonwealth, but also the founder. So it's a slightly different experience, in some ways inspired by Keith Joseph in that sort of attempt to have a rupture with what they saw as a sort of soggy heath failure of the sort of 73 government, albeit probably on different you know, political terms in terms of, I think in some ways, Rob and I would both agree about the importance of freedom, but just like differing views of like democratisation, decommodification, decarbonisation is kind of our central themes towards that end but yeah so it's I it was founded I actually used to work at, at IPPR and I sort of left IPPR to found it in 2019 so we're coming up for our fifth birthday so entering, entering school, school years
2: <laughs> and uh, the name is Commonwealth which is a lovely play on Commonwealth but yes. also Commonwealth
0: Exactly. It's Certainly, to begin with, there were a few early meetings where people were like, oh, you're from the Commonwealth. But no, the idea, as you said, is play on the idea of commons, commoning wealth, the idea that wealth is a collective creation. And therefore, we should sort of think about how we collectively steward that in common.
2: So before we get too far into what think tanks do or how they work, what is a think tank? How do you define a think tank? I actually don't think the word think tank's always that useful because I think most people probably hear it and
1: have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I mean, we're an independent charity, which is where we begin. But in terms of what we are, we're researchers, we're policy designers, we're advocates, we're also communicators, and so we do lots of work in the media and so on. And I think tank will typically range across all of those different functions, essentially to provide timely policy advice and ideas into the political debate.
0: I think there's also... Different think tanks play quite different functions. And so you will have sort of your Institute for Governments, which are much more on sort of the business of government, there'll be organizations, perhaps more like Commonwealth or or CPS in its origin, which is much more about rupture and sort of trying to sort of reimagine how we live together. There's think tanks that are much more specialized in particular areas, and there's the IFSs, the Resolution Foundation. So it's, I think, it's more about some ecology of Forms and functions, rather than the sort of one particular thing. But I think certainly what Kara speaks to of that role of rigorous research, the development out of policy, and then how you sort of build the coalitions to actually take ideas from sketchings through to actual implementation.
3: It, it's always a term which has resisted definition because it, it's such a wide space. There are think tanks which are charities, there are think tanks which are companies, there are think tanks which are so set up almost by r- royal command. There are think tanks which are spin-offs of universities and, and academic programmes. Everyone who's doing policy who's not a university or the government or a political party it is somewhere in that space on various different axes.
2: Which actually brings me on very nicely to my next question, which is why is it important to have these independent organisations that do these things rather than that kind of research coming from universities, academia or within the parties or the government itself?
0: I can offer an anecdote from Germany which might speak to this. So I remember going back in 2014 or a while ago and their model is each party has a sort of attached think tank and then the funding is based on the sort of percentage of the vote in their sort of most recent federal election and they get a percentage of the pot allocated to think tanks. But as a result, those think tanks are very much like, they're just like internal civil servants. They're very much sort of narrow, not really speaking to the media, quite
3: sort of insidery. They're also spectacular. spectacularly wealthy I and mean, they literally they, have their, is that. they literally have their own it, ski resorts and embassies it, and all exactly. sorts
0: but they don't have that sort of scrappy sense of like actually we need to try and create the weather actually shift debate it's, a, it's it's quite comfortable in a way and i think in a way the uk model of actually there's flaws but that sense as a collective we're all in some ways trying to articulate new ideas create the weather create shape the debate and then back it up with evidence and build the coalitions behind that whereas i think sort of the german model of having own ski resort seems a bit a bit less effective as sort of that Fundamental role of generating and transmitting ideas into public debate.
2: Are you saying that the CPS does not have its own ski resort?
3: Unfortunately, I mean, despite what you read about sinister dark money, one of the striking things about British politics is how underfunded it is compared with Germany compared with America I mean you, know, you get people from the US think tanks coming over for us and they are these are people who have just spent hundreds of millions of pounds on office buildings in Washington and they come to these sort of converted terrorist houses with brown wallpaper and they're just like okay this is what you guys do I was a journalist for 10 years and it was a wonderful career to do and I still write I could count on the finger of one hand the number of times I'd actually changed things or may you know, actually had an influence on, on the debate there's a sense that journalists don't have time are just too busy writing and politicians and especially their own government are just too busy just dealing with all of the like running a department dealing with endless crises so it's actually quite a rare space that you're in in British politics where you can just sit and think and whether it's short term or long term there's actually not that many people who are in a space to do that and it's a really privileged position I think
1: I'd agree with that. I guess two other groups we might compare think tanks to would be academics and civil servants. And the two things that come to mind are that think tanks can offer speed and they can offer creativity. And they will offer answers and recommendations, which academics sometimes struggle to get to. Think tanks do hold themselves to account for actually generating
2: an answer that addresses the problems on the table. So, Karis, you've worked for a number of organisations that we could loosely term think tanks i'm not sure if all of them do the but the RSA the social mobility foundation the IFS and and now IPR having had that kind of breadth of experience across the think tank ecosystem what lessons have you learned about a good way to operate or how to have the most impact
1: working at a range of different institutions really just has illustrated to me the point made earlier that there's a huge range and they perform very different functions. So, the IFS, for example, do extremely rigorous, intense data analysis. The RSA is focused on thinking about how to bring creativity into our social lives as well as policy and so on. So, they're quite different institutions. Whereas IPR, I think, is probably more similar to some of the other think tanks that we've talked about in terms of performing that role that is close to kind of politics and close to policy while being. Backed up by that kind of rigorous research. But we range further than some of the, say, the analytical think tanks in terms of using qualitative research,
2: covering quite a wide range of issues. When you start to sort of drill down into what you guys cover, in fact, all of you really, the sort of range of areas that you're interested in, it gets quite wide ranging quite quickly, which is quite exciting, maybe. It does. It's not without its challenges. As Robert
1: says, you know, we don't have huge resources. And so ranging across policy areas can be quite challenging. But I also think that offers something really valuable because you can join the dots between different policy areas. So, for example, if we're doing work on the environment, which is a very large priority for us, we can marry that with our work on democracy and thinking about how we can make the transition to net zero a democratic process. So you can join and make those linkages between different topics.
2: Matt, what was it about the problems that you were wanting to solve that made you go, actually, like, I want to found a think tank to address some of these?
0: In some ways, Commonwealth could have been incubated within another think tank. And I think the reason I decided to set up on my own, it was literally like me, basically was only full-time employed to start, we've now got 11 employees, was that sense like having ownership, which is actually the focus of Commonwealth, we sort of range across a broad range of topics, but through the prism of of questions of ownership and governance and property relations. And it was that sense that actually relative uh, to to a spad where you're ultimately at the whim of your sort of political master, so to speak, civil servant, similar, having ownership of a sort of think tank where you can really design everything out from the aesthetic to the sort of areas of focus the key policy levers
2: Designing
0: to the, the ski chalet, to, to the, that was the first thing we did. The sketches are still on the wall, not yet built. The sketches are there. And it was that sense of having ownership and then being able to sort of intervene at different levels. So you can intervene in the media in a way that if you're a spad, you maybe you can do some briefings behind the scenes, but essentially you are, you're silenced in that sense. You can intervene in terms of writing for publications like the New Statesman. You can intervene through research, through convening, through advocacy, through building out, trialing policy with sort of multiple scales of government local authorities upwards. So I think there's a sense of that. there's flexibility, there's control, there's more autonomy. Becoming an MP in some ways is about losing control. It's about taking the party whip. It's about sort of being in a collective. In some ways, founding a think tank was about having a clear vision of the role of democratic ownership. And that was a good vehicle to articulate and expand those ideas.
2: After the break, we'll talk about the impact think tanks have on party policy and how you actually measure success. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
1: If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news, and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: There is the opportunity, working as part of a think tank, to get into party policy and influence it. And I'm looking at you, Rob, because you helped write the 2019 Conservative Manifesto.
3: I did, although... What was that like? <laughs> so it's slightly unfair to say that's a sort of think-tank thing, because actually that was in, in many ways a product of my journalistic work. I, essentially, the way I, I put that is that, that Minira Merza and Rachel Wolfe, who the other two sort of lead actors in that, were the sort of architects and I was the interior designer. We, we were feeding in ideas and saying, hey, look, here's lots of stuff you should put in. But what actually happened was that I got, I got a call really quite late in the day during the election campaign itself saying, can you come on board and just help? basically turn this from a list of policies into a document and it's actually much more about air traffic control than brilliant I- ideology you're not sitting there thinking head of Zeus, ah this is yes this is my vision it has every single sentence been cost in this thing being costed if we're hang on we're saying this here but we're saying this on page 87 and those two don't match and have we got a list of People who are going to be really annoyed because we haven't mentioned their specific thing. And have we done a a Welsh version and a Scottish version? So it's much more like being a newspaper editor again, where people's copy comes in and it's your job to make it the best copy it can be, as opposed to whatever your own personal views are.
2: So what is the relationship like with MPs and with parties feeding in? Do you have not, I was going to say pet MPs, I mean sort of friendly MPs who are associated with your organisation, other particular ministers that you are or shadow ministers that you're trying to target. What's that kind of relationship with those individuals like on a sort of day-to-day basis? Certainly at IPPR, we would work with
1: politicians of all parties. Also, not just at Westminster. So we have IPPR North based in Manchester and IPPR Scotland based in Edinburgh. And so we do lots of work with Scottish government and also the metro mayors. And that that relationship would, I guess, look like feeding in policy ideas, policy discussions with some of those politicians,
2: but also working with their advisors quite a lot. And that's one of the key routes for us to have that policy debate. Do they come to you and say, we really want to sort out, I don't know, the bus system in our town? Do you have any research on that? Or do you go to them and say, we've got a great economist that's been looking at traffic policy, you should listen to what they're saying? Or is it kind of a mixture of both?
1: I'd say it's a bit of both. Obviously, you want to understand what they're really thinking about and the challenges that they're facing, but it's not a commissioning process. We're independent and we'll set the agenda for our research.
0: I think it's partly about developing of trust and then backing that up with delivering the goods, whether it's research, insightful ideas, thoughts. And so it's kind of that sort of layering up of trust and connectedness but we've worked with the government for example on sort of universal ownership and the rise of consolidated sort of asset management ownership in the city and some of the sort of auditing reforms that the government was previously doing and that was rooted in sort of some of the analysis we've done around the rise of sort of asset manager capitalism the rise of these very big asset manager titans and what the implications are for corporate governance and that was ultimately rooted in the rigour of the research and the analysis and so you do need that sort of bedrock it can't just be about like oh, i of built trust by going to the pub with you and there's obviously that sort of soft side to relationship building but I think there's that bedrock of you need to stand firmly on analysis policy
3: development ideas and then build out from there.
2: Rishi Sunak wrote a paper for you didn't he?
3: He did uh, He well he wrote two papers. He wrote two papers. No one ever talks about the second one but the first one he wrote was on Freeports and that was
2: Oh, there, was, there was another one that was on some kind of... Retail
3: bonds. Retail Very bonds. Very good. That is real kind of... Yeah. Uh, he
2: pitched it to, or you pitched it to City AM when I was there, and we, we took it, and it was the most boring thing I have ever read. Hey,
3: shame on you, Rachel. Shame on you, because... Retail you know, bonds. Um, yeah, if, we'd revive, if we were able to revive retail bonds for SMEs up and down this country, the capital markets would be in a much... Oh yeah, it was um, so
2: hard to headline.
3: Anyway... No, but yes. So R- Rishi wrote a paper for us when he was a backbench MP on Freeports, saying, look, actually, after Brexit, these can be a really valuable thing. That became insanely popular within the Conservative Party because it was a, a concrete benefit of Brexit that they all liked, liked the sound of. And that has got, got taken forward. And so actually, when I took over the CPS, we did a programme we called New Generation, where we went around and talked to as many of the new MPs as possible and um, said, look, what are the things you're interested in? Would you want to write for us and work together? And we produced, you know, a string of papers on that. And we're still doing quite a lot of that work. Just last week, we published something with Ranald J. Wardner on family-friendly taxation. And have been talking to quite a few other MPs about about doing stuff. The drink in the pub is quite valuable, not because sort of business gets done, but you, because you get to Bump into people and they say oh yeah I am really interested in that thing that you guys have coming up or have you thought about looking at this because it's doing my head in that there is this policy area you know so lots of politicians are really interested in policy and have ideas on it but they're also quite interested in what you have to say one question even gets- when it's about retail bonds
2: you know what I'll go and reread the paper and see if it's, it's as boring as I remember maybe I'm being really unfair It was written by the guy who's currently Prime Minister, so maybe there'll be something in there that I missed. One thing that people who know a bit about think tanks, but not a huge amount, one criticism that they get a lot, particularly ones on the right, is funding. And this idea that there are these kind of shadowy, unnamed forces that are influencing UK policy and trying to sell off our NHS or making us all start smoking or whatever. I would be interested from sort of all three of you how... You do get the funding obviously not as much as the german or the american ones do but you do have offices you do have staff you do have to raise money to keep the lights on and how does that relationship work and what do people get wrong about it
1: so we get our funding from a range of sources the majority of it comes from charitable trusts and foundations But we also do get some corporate sponsorship for events and so on. And we have some individuals who give to us as well. I think the key point here is transparency, number one. So we publish all of our funders on our website. The second thing is being really clear about the independence of the research. So when we're having conversations with funders, we'll make it extremely clear that they have no editorial control over the work that we're doing that always rests with us. And so we can be really confident that even if there is the perception that someone is funding it because they're interested in the outcome, they have no control over that outcome. So I think the combination of transparency and being clear on that independence is key.
3: Yeah, so we're, we obviously attract more publicity on this because for the last 49 years, like quite a lot of other think tanks, we've not listed everyone who's, who's given us money. We have a set of, I think, quite rigorous protocols in place. Editorial independence is obviously a key one. Um, whenever anyone gives us money for a specific project, especially when it's in the the commercial interests. We always declare it. So if someone has paid for a report or contributed towards a report, it will be there in the acknowledgements. It'll be there on, on the press release. The majority of our funding comes from individuals. And it's people who believe in what we believe in. And everyone thinks that the sort of the chain of causation is person has money, they give think tank money, think tank says thing. In my experience, it's 99% of the time, it's think tank says thing, person thinks, Oh, I like this thing, they're saying, I will support them. Like I have been saying for 10 years now that we need to build more houses on an industrial scale and that that has led some people to go oh yes i quite like people who say this i think you should carry on carry on saying it It, it's not the, the case that someone went aha i have a sinister plan to get people to say that we need more housing but ultimately i think also one of the things about think tanks is it is actually all out in the open what doesn't happen in this country, or at least I've not experienced it, is that we have a kind of cunning idea and we sneak into number 10 and we whisper it in someone's ear. And then two minutes later, they announce the, that they're going to, I don't know, privatise space or whatever the hell the idea is you have an idea you publish a report everyone argues with you about the report if you've got your arguments and facts wrong then people will tell you jonathan porters for example loves to read everything the cps produces and can tell us like guys you know on page 87 you said this and you idiots saw it and quite often we'll go oh yeah sorry screwed that one up or then sometimes we'll go no actually jonathan you haven't read page what is remarkable about british politics and the think tank landscape is actually genuinely how how open open the discussion is and I think that's that's probably quite a good thing. But that also rests on the idea of the fact that we have a load of think tanks, like way more than the sort of market forces would support. There's just so many people out there with ideas. Everyone is wrestling with and scrutinising each other's ideas. And I think w- what tends to deliver change is not so much one think tank having one good idea. It's when you get a sort of critical mass. So... The full expensing, this thing which was in the budget, the idea that Britain has been insanely stingy in how we reward firms for investing in making capital investments. That's something that we've shouted about. It's something that the Adam Smith Institute's shouted about. It's something that lots of think tanks on the centre-left grew up a consensus that, yeah, this is really something where we're not doing very well and we should do better, which is why it's now become the orthodoxy, and they they eventually did it. I think success generally has many fathers rather than being the product of a singular vision.
2: And do you think think tanks go in and out of fashion in the sort of political space obviously we've had 13 years of conservative government so more think tanks on the right and center right have had a lot of attention because they've been the ones that the government is more likely to listen to but it feels like certain ideas or organizations get a lot of attention get a lot of publicity for what they're doing and then a couple of years later it's a new one or it's an old one that now has got attention Again, having been ignored for the last decade, does it work like that? Do you think
3: massively in in Westminster, like proximity to power is currency, and if you are the think tank which is close to the people in power, then you have currency. So you know the CPS and and the IEA Institute of Economic Affairs back in Thatcher's day, but then also Demos, you know the IPPR, Demos, Foreign Policy Center. Uh, reform in that kind of centrist era when we were all very interested in p- how public policy works and everyone basically agreed with each other, policy exchange under Cameron, like there, there is this, and then under uh, this kind of mushrooming of of organisations under Corbyn and uh, McDonald, because the traditional centre-left think tanks were a bit a bit uneasy about some of the stuff they represented. So suddenly you had Owen Jones and Co. setting up a tank called CLASS, which was funded by the trade unions. It, it, it is an extremely seasonal area.
2: How do you deal with that?
3: I think it's just part of the natural rhythm of
0: politics in some way. I don't think there's something to deal with i just think it just naturally flows from the rhythm the nature of power the sort of cyclicality of politics if there is a change of government i suppose that the rhythm might be like then the attention might shift towards an ippr labour in government for example echoing what robert said about sort of past years But then I guess at some point the attention will shift to say like, oh, well, maybe CPS are doing the rethinking of what is the sort of conservatism for the 2020s. I I think that is just natural.
1: They might expand or get smaller over time as well and their roles will change. And I think that's entirely right, depending on where the politics is and where the ideas might be, that think tanks might evolve their role under different types of political leadership and so on. And I think it's that there is a need to reinvent and rethink and stay fresh rather than stay in perhaps what the kind of the theory of change was 20 years ago.
2: And in terms of impact, can you give any examples of policies that your organisations have worked on that have been adopted by past governments, parties in the past? And sort of other than that, how do you measure success? How do you measure impact? What does success look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of historic examples over 35 years where, you know, going back to the 90s, IPPR did something called the Commission on Social Justice, which was very influential in shaping the new Labour government, for example. More recently, a couple of specific examples of things we were really pleased to see. One was Labour's pledge on green investment, which is something that came out of our Environmental Justice Commission, together with others acting in the space. Another would be the Conservative commitment for childcare, which uh, we did a lot of work with Sam um, Friedman, which led to that announcement, which we're really pleased with. But I think the, almost the difficulty in picking an individual policy or indeed in measuring impact at all, is the point we were talking about earlier, which is that it's very rare that you have one think tank acting alone, securing a policy win. What's far more likely is that there's a groundswell of opinion across a lot of different actors, not just think tanks, also campaigners, politicians and so on, who work to achieve that change. There's always something slightly uncomfortable about claiming a success when really it's typically a group
3: effort even the fact that when you move employer, your pension, you can move your pension with you. No one had actually said we should have that until someone at the CPS did. Synthetic phonics, the and the reading revolution, that was in very large part due to a guy who just kept on writing reports going, look, look, it's really good, guys. It's really working. And eventually, enough people came on board. And more recently, the plan for long term fixed rate mortgages, which is a brilliant idea, which is unfortunately, it would have been brilliant if we'd done it when interest rates were zero. But unfortunately, it took the Bank of England a little too long to see the merits. So yeah, yeah so lots and lots of uh, of stuff but I think that there's a difference as well between individual victories and between winning battles and winning the war so you could we you could say look here's a list of 50 cps policies which have been Im- implemented in the last 20 30 years job done or you can say well actually look the state is larger than ever taxes are higher than ever on what metric can you say you guys have succeeded you're always fighting the war you're always there's a kind of wider thing of trying to shape the narrative shape the debate and try to make more fundamental arguments as well as just get Individual policy victories. Matt,
2: do you have the Labour Party coming to you for ideas?
3: I think there's two things. I think, for, firstly, it's, as both Karis and Robert
0: have said, it's about this sort of atmospherics as well. It's about the wider sort of terrain. And it's about like, a war of movement versus a war of position, to use a sort of Gramsci <laughs> phrase of like, what are the sort of like, quick wins, the nimbleness, but then what is the sort of like deep structural sort of structures of feeling that shape society, that shape politics, that shape culture. And can you sort of intervene in that? And I think Commonwealth in some ways more than most, is about a horizon of ambition that kind of explicitly seeks to look beyond the day-to-day while also then anchoring on the inside. Part of that, I suppose, one way to make that more concrete is that we, you know, we do a lot of work on the idea of an energy democracy, the idea of decommodified energy, decarbonized, it organises a public good, which is a quite long-term horizon but then we've done quite a bit of work on the idea of a publicly owned generator, which is obviously a version of which is the Great British Energy Proposal that Labour adopted last year. So we put out a report and we've been working on it over the summer and autumn of last year. And then that kind of was Keir Starmer's sort of key flagship announcement. So that was kind of an example. But I think probably more than most Commonwealth and think tanks like Autonomy and others are about trying to prefigure, stretch the imagination, you know, that collective sense of what we can be and sort of expanding that. But At the same time, very much trying to do robust, rigorous analysis on the spread between corporate bonds versus private sector developers of offshore wind farms. What are the potential savings gaps? We do a lot of work looking at financial databases and sort of Bloomberg terminal style analysis. It's very much trying to keep a, a foot in the real world of policy and politics, but we have that sort of, yeah, the war of position of the atmospherics that needs to be shifted and that I think CPS in its early days in the 70s and it was as much sort of cultural transformation as it was just here's a set of policy ideas that were adopted and I think that's important to cleave to.
2: If you got five minutes in a lift with Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer, depending on who the Prime Minister at that particular moment was, and you wanted to pitch one policy that you think is really important and they should adopt, what would you go for? I think Rob's going to say houses. We're going to say oh, houses. Well, actually,
3: I, actually, the first thing I'm going to say is I should apologise to our German colleagues because I think I've misremembered it wasn't a, a ski resort. It was just a common garden resort. So really, <laughs> yeah. But no, um, yeah. Build more houses. Build, 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 build.
1: Karis? I think for me, it would be about investing in the social infrastructure that we all rely on. And I guess to make that really specific, childcare, I think is a really needs to be the next frontier of the welfare state. And so I would pitch out to them. The Conservatives have gone part way, but have not funded it properly or done enough to how the childcare system works for it to function really effectively. And Labour yet to commit to it. So that one.
0: And Matt? I think something like a living income proposal, which has got a sort of very broad-based coalition from Bright Blue to JRF to some of the work IPPR Scotland and the New Economics Foundation have done, which is this idea of like the welfare state should guarantee no one drops below a minimum standard of sort of income, whether they're in or out of work, as a way to sort of make real this this clunky phrase of securonomics, you know, what could, you know, embody that more than making sure that no one felt the insecurity of not having enough Money at the end of the month to keep the lights on, to pay the rent, to put food on the table. It's costed, it's plausible, it's got a very broad range from centre-left to centre-right. And I think that could be an idea that could sort of set a floor from which we could live a more secure, flourishing society.
2: Matt Lawrence, Robert Colville and Karis Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, just a reminder that you can vote for us in the Listener's Choice category in the British Podcast Awards. Vote now at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting any time until the 5th of September. Just type in The New Statesman Podcast and it will come up. You've been listening to The New Statesman Podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my guests, Robert Colville, Matthew Lawrence, and Karis Roberts. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch the video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Chris Stone.